You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Turn with me to Genesis 23. Genesis chapter 23, this has been our custom, we're going to read the whole chapter. Genesis 23, starting in verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat from me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. That he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will hear me, give me the price of the field. I give the price of the field rather. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered and said to Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So verse 17. The field of Ephron at Machpelah which was to the east of Mamre. The field and the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And this, beloved, is God's word to us. Please be seated.
most folks are a bit startled uh, and even become a little uneasy uh, when they find out that I would prefer, as a pastor, I would prefer to officiate a funeral over a wedding. Um, And that's not because I don't enjoy weddings or officiating weddings. I enjoy them very much. I love weddings. I love everything about weddings. I I even love the premarital counseling that happens before weddings. I love Christ-centered ceremonies within the wedding. I I love dancing with my wife at the reception. Some of you guys know that. I I even love the, the little cheesy giveaway bottles of bubbles that you get on the table, right? That say Mr. and Mrs. Whoever. I love all of that. I love all of it. And yet, if I were to receive a request to officiate a wedding and a funeral on the same day, in most cases, I would choose the funeral. Why? And it's not because I like funerals. (laughs) I don't like feeling grief. Like the rest of you, sadness is not something my flesh desires. It's not why I would prefer to do a funeral. Instead, the reason I would prefer to do a funeral is because, as another writes, a corpse is a fierce reality. It demands that we explain the claims of Jesus. A corpse is a fierce reality. And it demands that we explain the claims of Jesus. At a wedding, everyone is concerned about very inconsequential things. They all matter, they're important, but in the big scheme of things, the color of the tablecloth is inconsequential, right? Whether the aunts and the uncles are talking to each other in the big scheme of things is inconsequential. What's on the menu, as important as that may be, is inconsequential. But at a funeral, there is a singular focus. At a funeral, it doesn't matter how much money you make in life. At a funeral, nobody cares what color the drapes are. At at a funeral, there is a singular reckoning and a singular question that courses through everybody's heart and mind. What is my only hope in life and death? How do I get out of this thing? And it's in the spirit of this question. What is my only hope in life and death? It is the spirit of this question that I I want to turn now in our focus of Genesis 23. And as we have just read, this is the record of the death of Sarah. And this forms our first scene, our first movement in the text, the death of Sarah. Look at verses 1 and 2 again of this heavy scene. Sarah lived 127 years, verse 1. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham, that is her husband, went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, Abraham and Sarah at this point were married over 100 years. They're married for over a hundred years. 
Abraham is 137 and Isaac is 37 years old. And Moses records in verse 2 that Abraham mourned and wept for his wife. He mourned and he wept. Now those two words do not mean that Abraham merely got teary-eyed or he got misty-eyed or he was whimpering slightly. But those two words that he mourned and he wept for Sarah means that he was wailing and sobbing uncontrollably. He was going to desperately miss his wife of over a hundred years. I remember being at a wedding at a wedding reception with my grandparents who have since passed. But you remember the, those wedding games that they play? If you've been married for five years, stay on the dance floor. You know, if you've been married for 10 years, you stay on the dance floor all the way up. And it was my grandparents that were the last ones. They had been married for 64 years. And everybody just gives the collected like, oh, isn't that so sweet? Look at them. They're just so old and sweet. And there they are on the dance floor. And, and the, the DJ or whoever the you know, the MC of the night goes, well, tell us your secret. How, how do you, how do you last 64 years? And my, my grandpa just says, you just listen to whatever she says, you know, and everybody laughs and aha, it's so, it's so funny. But what captured the moment was 64 years of being together. And as their grandson, I got to reflect from afar at all that they had been through. I know, I know that those 64 years were not summed up in that one dance. There were some really hard times in our family, really difficult times between them. My mom would later share with us that, that there were times when they didn't, the kids didn't know if mom and dad were going to make it. There were some lows, but then we're reflecting on the highs and, and their 50 year anniversary. And it's just a mixed bag of emotions that kind of flood the heart and mind. And so it's understandable now as we look at Abraham now weeping and wailing and sobbing over the loss of his wife of over a hundred years. It's understandable the grief and the mourning that he is feeling. One might equate sobbing and weeping with hopelessness. I think that would be a grave mistake. Weeping and sobbing is not always the evidence of hopelessness. Weeping, of course, in this context, is the natural consequence of the pain of loss. In fact, I would argue to be unmoved emotionally in the face of death, the death of a loved one, is not healthy and not biblical. In fact, it would be strange and troubling. The author of Ecclesiastes says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. So grieving and lamenting relational loss is healthy and biblical. And let me just say this before we get all the way into this sermon. Some of you I know have lost loved ones recently. Some from COVID. Some from cancer. Some have lost moms and dads. Some have lost siblings. And I just want you to know, as one of your pastors, there is a time to weep and there is a time to mourn. We don't see that as strange or hopeless as you grieve the loss of a loved one. 
I saw a guy the other day who was standing on some scaffolding and he looked like Jeff Gleason. And um, I was just struck. And he's, you know, he's not a close family member. He was a, he attended our church for some years and I, and I saw him and I, I just had to stop. And I thought, and he was on scaffolding. So, you know, Jeff was in construction and in, in, um, in elect, he did electrical work. And I just, and then I recognized it wasn't him. And I was just in that moment, I was just struck with sadness. And I just longed for one of Jeff's rants about Verizon wireless, <laughs> you know, like just even that. And if that struck me with sadness, somebody that is at a, you know, not super close. I can't imagine what some of you are going through, loss of a, of a, of a family member, a mom, a dad, a sibling. I'm so sorry for your loss. There's a time to weep and a time to mourn. And death is a fierce reality. It is so sobering. And it is so difficult. And so Abraham was weeping, no doubt recalling their lives together, the good and the bad. When God called them to leave Ur of the Chaldeans to follow God to a land unknown, perhaps he was remembering that. Perhaps he was remembering his failures as a husband to lead Sarah well and to cultivate her heart and to care for her. Maybe he was recalling their miracle child, Isaac, who's now 37 years old. You could just imagine the, the, the confluence of emotions that overcome the patriarch. And so, yes, death is a fierce reality. And all of us at some level will deal with it. And it, and it provides for us an insatiable ache in our soul. And yet, somehow... The Lord grants us strength to get up and to keep moving. We never move beyond the loved ones that we lost. It's not like out of sight, out of mind. We never move beyond them. But in the strength of God's grace, somehow we do move forward. We get up and we keep going. And this is what we see in the life of Abraham. In our next scene, he looks now for a place for burial. Look at verse 3 and following. And Abraham rose up. He rose up from before his dead. And he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. For who knows how long. The patriarch, after weeping and wailing for who knows how long, the patriarch stands to his feet and he decides it's time to bury his wife. Notice in verse 4, Abraham calls Sarah his dead. I had to read that a couple of times like, man, that just feels calloused to me. It feels a bit cold. He's dead. I need to bury my dead. But I don't think Abraham is intending to be insensitive or calloused. After all, he was just sobbing and weeping over the loss of his wife. Instead, Abraham has come to terms with the reality that Sarah is not there. Though her body was there, laid before him, present with him, her soul was not there. There was something noticeably missing. 
And therefore, it was time to bury Sarah. What follows in the verses before us is quite remarkable. And it's remarkable because only two verses in this whole chapter, only two verses is given to describe the death of Sarah and Abraham's grieving. Only two verses. 14 verses are given to talk about this land that Abraham is trying to find in order to bury Sarah. This, this cave, this particular plot of land. Two verses for the passing of Sarah and 14 verses about land. And that's just perplexing to me. And so I hope, I hope to answer why not only is Abraham so adamant about this particular land, but why is Abraham, did you notice in the reading, why is he so adamant to pay for it himself? This poor guy Ephron's like, I'm going to give it to you. You can have it. And Abraham's like, no, no. Three times they go back and forth. And the question is, why is this land so important to Moses, our author, and to Abraham himself? And why is Abraham so adamant to pay for it and not receive it as a gift? Well, let's read and see if we can discover together what's going on here. Look at verses four and following again. Abraham raises up from his dead and he says, I am a sojourner, verse four, and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites, the people there of the land answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So stop right there just a moment. Notice the respect that Abraham has. I mean, I mean they're calling him a prince of God, my Lord. There's, I mean, Abraham now, by the grace of God, has acquired a lot of respect among the Hittites, the people of Canaan. And so they respond to Abraham, listen, Our land is yours. Take whatever you need to bury your dead. You're a prince of God among us. Look at verse 18. Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites. So there's mutual respect between Abraham and the Hittites, the people of the land. Verse 8. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat. Go get Ephron, the son of Zohar. Verse 9. And that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns... It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, this is really interesting. Abraham already has a burial plot picked out. And he's not offering like this general area. I'd like to bury Sarah in this sort of general area. No, he's got a particular cave It's a cave called Machpelah, and it's at the end of Ephron's property, at the very edge of his property. That's the one I want. He's already got it picked out. That's got to be interesting for those, the Hittites listening to him. Wow, that's really specific. (laughs) More on that in just a moment. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. He's there listening. To Abraham and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites and all who were there in the gate of the city. No, my Lord, verse 11, hear me. I give you the field. I give it. I give you the cave that is in it. 
In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron, verse 14, answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. That's, that's six pounds of silver. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money. But he says, what is that between you and me? Like, that's not a hindrance for me. You have the field, bury your dead. Abraham, verse 16, listen to Ephron. He heard how much he had in mind. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights, according to the merchants. So again, what is going on here? Why is the patriarch so adamant about this particular land? And why is he so anxious to pay for it himself? And the answer is very simple, and yet it has a lot of layers. And the answer is this. This is not ordinary land. That's the answer. The reason the patriarch is so adamant about this land and he's so adamant that he pay for it in full is because this is not ordinary land. This is in Canaan. This is the promised land. In God's providence, he allowed Sarah to die in the promised land. This is the same land that God promised Abraham back in chapter 12. And re-promised back in chapter 13 and re-promised in 14, 15, 16, 17. God has promised over and over and over again that he was going to give Abraham and Sarah a land. And in this land, they would produce an offspring that would outnumber the stars of the heaven. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've been hearing this promise about this land, about this land. In fact, this is the same land that God commanded Abraham to walk Do you remember this back in chapter 13? Let me read you the text again. The Lord said to Abram, this is back before he changed his name, after Lot separated from him, God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, this is Canaan, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And listen to what God says to Abraham in verse 17. Arise, walk. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So even though At the time of Sarah's death, Abraham didn't currently own any of this land. He knew it really well. That's that's why he could be so specific about the cave at Machpelah. He had walked right by it. He knew that that would be the perfect place in God's promised land. And so, the providence of God to have Sarah die in Canaan must have struck Abraham's heart as he grieved. 
I have the opportunity to bury Sarah in the land that God has promised his descendants. And hundreds of years, hundreds of years before his descendants would actually possess their land, there would be a single parcel of land, a little plot of land owned by the Hebrews. And Abraham says, this is, I'm, I am not going to let somebody give this to me. I'm going to purchase it. I'm going to make sure my name is on the deed. In fact, in that same cave, Abraham later would be buried. And then Isaac and his wife would be buried in the same cave. And Jacob and his wife would be buried in this same cave. And again, that's why Abraham wouldn't receive it as a gift. No way. There was no way he was going to chance that this piece of land would be under somebody else's name. And Ephron the Hittite, bless your soul. Thank you for wanting to give it to me, but I'm going to pay for it in full. Because Ephron the Hittite did not give Abraham the land. God did. Yes, Abraham grieves the passing of his wife. He mourns the loss of Sarah. But then, beloved, he carries his wife right into the middle of God's promises. And he remembers. And like a seed, he plants her in the ground expecting that a harvest of descendants would come after her and fill the land of promise. The the patriarch is struck by the providence of God and by the promises of God, and he carries his his wife to the center of God's promise. Listen, the sorrows of death pointed Abraham to the center of God's promise. The sorrows of death pointed Abraham right to the center of God's promise. Verse 17 to the end. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. As a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the city, at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property. So this is an official dealing. It is Abraham's property for burying a burying place by the Hittites. Later on, as I mentioned, Abraham followed by, would be followed by the other patriarchs and their wives would be buried all in the same tomb. Hundreds of years before Israel would actually possess Canaan as their land. Which provokes John Calvin to write this. He says, quote, While their corpses themselves were silent and speechless... The tomb itself cried out that death was no obstacle to their taking possession of the inheritance. While their corpses were lifeless, the tomb was crying out that death, even death itself, would be no obstacle for them to receive their inheritance. 
And you better believe that death is no obstacle for God's people today either. In fact, not only was death no obstacle to their possessing the inheritance, but indeed death became the entrance into their inheritance. And like so much of what we have discovered in the book of Genesis, the land of Canaan, the promised land is a type. It's a shadow. It's pointing outside of itself. A type and a shadow which points to something far greater like Noah and Melchizedek, like Isaac, like the ram last week. All of these are types. They're all pointing. They're all showing us something greater that's coming. As it's true with Noah and Melchizedek and the Isaac and the ram, so it is with the land of promise. The land is pointing to something far more profound than the land itself. In fact, Abraham himself knew, at least to some degree, that the land of Canaan was pointing to something more profound. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. The author of Hebrews is writing about this very thing. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Abraham, he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For, verse 10, or because he was looking forward He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to an even greater land, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, whose whose founder and designer is God himself. And this is where I want to end this morning. I want to end looking forward to what this land was pointing to 2,000 years after the death of Sarah. One of the descendants of Abraham, a particular, a peculiar son of a Nazarene would be found walking the land again, walking in Canaan. And he was a peculiar son of Abraham. And when all of the talk in the first century, when all of the talk in Canaan was was about how to rid these Roman oppressors from our land, let's get them out of our land. This is our land. It was all about the land. When all of the talk in Israel was to get rid of the Romans from the promised land, this man, this peculiar son of a carpenter, kept teaching stubbornly a message that was entirely different. And it frustrated everyone. What about the land? What about the temple? See, he wasn't interested in forming new political movements, this peculiar seed of Abraham. Nor was he particularly interested in the debates between the zealots and the tax collectors. 
In fact, he called one of each and said, you're going to follow me and learn about a new kingdom. Instead, this rabbi, this peculiar rabbi went about Israel in the land, proclaiming a message of resurrection and eternal life. A land beyond the land. He kept preaching a message of resurrection and eternal life. When they said, no, 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 let's make him a king over the land. He said, I don't want to be a king over the land. And he claimed, and this is what got him killed. He claimed that this was not just his message, but that this indeed was the message of all of scripture. This peculiar rabbi, Christ himself, began invoking Abraham's name and invoking Moses' name. And he was saying that all of their teaching was pointing to himself. And this is what got him killed. Here's, Here's one interaction that signed the death warrant for Jesus of Nazareth. This is in... John chapter 8. Let me read this exchange to you. John chapter 8, verse 48. And, and the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you, that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's one of, the, one of the most bizarre accusations of Christ. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see, what? Death. (laughs) But you said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham, okay, Abraham Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet, you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets, who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? Aren't you Joseph's kid? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing but it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. You have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. And listen to what Jesus says. Your father, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am.
if you keep reading in John's gospel, it's at this point that their treatment of Jesus really began to pivot. This is not just a novel rabbi who is communicating some fringe sort of ideas in Palestine. No, this, this man is claiming deity. Before Abraham was, I am. Beloved, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, another seed was planted in Canaan. But unlike Sarah, this seed would not reap a harvest of flesh and blood merely. But this seed would bring about a resurrection of body and soul. In fact, this seed is the seed. This is the seed that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 3. When he said to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The New Testament writers are saying, no, no, this is not a seed of Abraham, this peculiar Nazarene Jesus. This is the seed. This is the promised one who would crush the head of serpent. This is the prophet. This is the priest. This is the king. And this is our great inheritance. This seed would take upon himself the sins of the world. And like a ram who was caught in the thicket, this seed, the lamb of God would become our substitute to suffer and die under the hand of Pontius Pilate. But this seed three days later would rise again. The one who is named resurrection and life would come walking out of the tomb, conquering Satan and sin and death. And because this seed looked death square in the face and shouted, where is your victory? We too will look death square in the face and say the same. His victory is our victory. Well, this is a peculiar seed. Yes, a corpse is a fierce reality. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a more fierce reality. And the Apostle Paul says, if we get this wrong, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of redemption falls apart. Yes, death, a corpse, is a fierce reality. But Christ conquering the grave, conquering death, is a more fierce reality. Yes, the pangs of death are gripping, but the hand of the Father through the work of the Son grips harder. Therefore, we do grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Let me end with Paul's words to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The apostle says, we do not want you to be uninformed 
brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died. I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have died. That you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is why Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Because the inheritance was more than a land. It was a kingdom that cannot be shaken, even by death itself.